listening to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtasha Hadi. In each episode, we will talk with some of the most inspiring and courageous individuals who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardships, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to inform, entertain, and inspire. Okay, happy listening. Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. This is Bakhtash Ahadi. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, we'll be speaking with Howard Ross. Howard Ross was born into a middle-class Jewish family in Washington, D.C., just after the Holocaust, where many of his family members died. Out of this tragedy, he learned two things. One, that terrible things happen because people are different. And two, that you have the responsibility to do something about it. This began his fascination in studying history, organizational development, human behavior, and psychology in an effort to abolish the us-versus-them mentality, which wasn't an easy task to do, especially in the 1980s, before there was any talk of diversity and inclusion. During his studies, he had an aha moment. The Germans weren't inherently bad people, he thought. They were just a product of a broken societal system and environment. And the same goes for every genocide and hate group in history. He began to explore what if instead of telling people what you believe is wrong, we instead showed people what we believe is actually just an unconscious perception based on our past experiences. What if we showed people it's possible to understand where an enemy is coming from once you hear their story? Since this realization, Howard has worked with leaders in Fortune 500 companies all over the world to facilitate these conversations that have allowed people to recognize the humanity in each other and become more empathetic. It's important to note that Howard is a best-selling author and one of the nation's most influential diversity consultants, specializing in corporate culture, leadership development, and managing diversity. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, you'll learn how you can become aware of your own unconscious bias and what you can do to become more empathetic, understanding, and inclusive. I learned a great deal in this conversation, and I hope you do too. So without further ado, this is Howard Ross. Howard Ross, welcome to the podcast. Hey, glad to be here. Good to have you, sir. Okay, Howard, what's your story? Well, you know, it's, I think it's, it's always interesting because we look back at life, particularly at 69 years old, and, and people you know, ask you how you got here as if it was a plan. The truth is it feels a little bit more like a two-year-old running downhill trying to stay on my feet. Um, I, was, I was raised in a Jewish family, a middle-class family. My dad ran a Pep Boys store, an automotive repair store, and uh, my mom worked for the government. And um, we came out of uh, really a time when there was a lot going on. You know, I was born in January 1951 in the shadow mm-hmm. of the Holocaust. We had a tremendous amount of family loss from the Holocaust. We know 43 members of our family died in two days on August 2nd, 3rd, 1942, when the Nazis obliterated the community that my grandfather came from in the western Ukraine, just as one example. And my grandfather, um, on my mother's side, was an activist. He had been one of the people who organized the group that purchased and outfitted the Exodus ship in Baltimore Harbor. So my grandmother, on my father's side, was an organizer for the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. So there were two very important messages growing up. One was that terrible things have happened because people are different. And the other was, you have a responsibility to do something about it. So it became sort of our family business. My older sister became one of our nation's leading immigration attorneys until she retired just a couple of years ago. My oh, younger wonderful. sister was Marion Wright Edelman's fundraiser at the Children's Defense Fund for many years. Okay. And I started my career as a teacher and then a school administrator. Okay. And uh, working with very young children. And then um, found that when I when I grew the school that I was running, found that I knew nothing about organization. So I began to study organizational behavior and design and, and organizational development and leadership. Okay. And that ended up with the school being successful, which which resulted in my helping other schools. And then eventually, 
leaving to spend a couple of years working in a hospital as a, doing staff development work, and um, and that then finally going out as an independent consultant, and then yeah. that was when the two worlds came together when the diversity movement started in okay. 80, 85, 86 or so. Okay, and so I found myself being paid for the stuff that they used to throw tear gas at us for. So oh you gosh. know, it sort of all developed very organically in that way. Okay, so there's a, there's a lot to unpack there, mm-hmm. um, Howard. So let's start from the beginning here. So you. Um, are you from the Washington D.C. area? Yeah, I was born in D.C. Actually, I grew up in I grew up in Northeast in Riggs Park, and uh, my parents moved out to Silver Spring in 1960 when um, when the neighborhoods were changing. I say that with air quotes. Now, can we talk about that for a second? Because sure. uh, I think that's a fascinating kind of transition that happened here in Washington D.C. Because right now we are on a precipice of it being the opposite now, mm-hmm. where people are there's an influx of people coming into that's D.C. Right. So, could you help us understand um, as somebody who loves Washington DC. What was that like? What did you what did you experience? What was the catalyst for it? Was the assassination of MLK? What, what kind of happened for to make that happen? Well, no, I mean this was 1960, so it was mm-hmm. long before, you know, MLK, but I think very clearly I remember growing up um, that uh, our schools were completely integrated. I mean, we had, you know, large numbers of African American um, students and white students together. I think there wasn't much talk about very many other communities at that point. You know, that mostly when we thought about diversity, we talked about African American and, and white folks yeah. because, of course, the Latino communities and Asian communities were still just beginning to, to grow yeah, this yeah. part of the country, anyway. Yeah, um, and it was sort of the norm. So, you know, as a as a child who was nine years old at the time, you know, I didn't have a lot of geopolitical sense of what was happening. All I knew was that. Seems like a lot of our neighbors were moving, and one day my parents said, "Hey, we're going to move too." And a lot of them moved out of what had been their initial starter homes in the city. And this was when really the expansion of the suburbs in between 1950 and 1960 was the great American story. And so, like right. you know, and as it turned out, of course, we find out when we look at it later as adults that there was a racial component to that, and that a lot of the families who were moving into these starter homes were black, and a lot of the families who were moving out to the suburban homes were white. And so, like like most parts of the country, that was pretty segregated. So that's fascinating. How did that story come to be? How was that transmitted? How was that spread? Was that uh, like how did that how did that actually start? Well, I think it was like I said, it's something that's more concealed by its obviousness to a okay. child. I mean, it was just sort right. of there. Um, right. You know, for my parents, it felt like. I'm sure, um, wow, this was great growth on their part. They moved from this little tiny house that they had, which right. was sort of a, a townhouse or a row house in the city, to a house with a lawn and a neighborhood. and A white picket fence? Yeah, the, yeah. Oh, the whole bit, you know. Yeah. And, and so for them, it was it was probably a progression that, you know, I really believe, and my parents said, had, had very little to do with race or anything like that mm-hmm. for them because, you know, they were fundamentally liberal in their approach. And it's yeah. not to say that liberals don't have those issues, but it was more... It was more that there was, a, and I think it speaks to largely to a lot of the issues that we deal with or race are concerned, which is that we have these systemic issues of uh, white privilege, white supremacy, you know, all these kinds of issues that we look at. Um, you know, we look at it relative to gender and, and sort of to what people are now calling toxic masculinity, you know, which are all these systemic issues. Um, and, and we have a tendency sometimes to, I think, mistakenly assume that anybody who is affected by those issues believes in the core evil behind those issues. But in fact, it's more just that this is what people are doing, you know. So, so right. now it's like, you know, people like us are moving to the suburbs, so we'll move to the suburbs. And, and, and I think it's more of our unconsciousness around what's the implication of that um, that has those impacts than it is because people sort of wake up in the morning and say, how can I suppress women and people of color today? And, and this is one of the challenges is that, that we assume intention where really it's just, it's ignorance um, underneath the surface. That's really fascinating. So this was the, the first time where you exposed 
uh, to something like this where it was just kind of like going along with the masses. But later on, in retrospect, you realized that there was a there. You you could essentially parse out essentially what was going on. Yeah, that's what you're telling yeah. me. Yeah, and you can see this happening now into the city. You know, yeah. like you said, it, the, the the reverse function of this, which is gentrification. Yeah, and so you've got people who are living in the city who are either. Um, in houses that they bought um, years ago, when that part of the city was was more depressed economically, yeah. and now you've got somebody coming in from the suburbs who say, "I'll pay you twice that for this house," and the person says, "Well, hell, you know, I mean, that's a lot of money for me and my family, and I'm going to do that." Right. Or more likely, I'm renting a house from somebody from a landlord in the city, and somebody approaches that landlord and mm-hmm. says, "I can give you a huge amount for this house," and so the landlord says, "Look, sorry." Um, but you know, I'm selling and, and you got to move out and either way, um, it becomes a thing to do. So for, for families who want to move into the city, for the families who are gentrifying, Mm -hmm. it looks like, wow, this is, you know, it's not like I'm saying I'm coming in intentionally to push out the people who are there. It's just, I'm coming because I can get a really great house and a nice growing community and I'm in the city and I can walk to the neighborhood store and you know I've got this there's whole a dog sort of, park this whole romantic studio. notion of what living in the city is that that draws me in and and there's nothing wrong with any of that there's nothing wrong with wanting to live in the city but again the systemic application of this beyond mm-hmm. any indis- individual decision people makes is that you've got wealthier white people coming in and pushing out poor people of color so mm-hmm. so you know I think I think it's important for us to recognize how much of what happens relative to diversity happens at that level it's not a personal vindictive or personally hurtful thing that people are doing but the system ends up having that impact that's really curious so how did you come to realize through your work that it was systematic like what was the catalyst for you understanding it was it your time as an educator was it your time? working in corporations like how did this come to be i I think it's just a a growth over a period of time i mean both Mm -hmm. in my personal story and in my work story i mean Mm -hmm. i think most people uh, tend to tend to think individually you know very few people inherently as children think Mm -hmm. systemically it's just not the nature of how we we live life we tend to live life based on my immediate interaction with you or the people i'm interacting with and i attribute to you or the people I'm interacting with, personal qualities that led to your behavior. And it's only, it. I think, later when we get more sophisticated that we realize, realize how much of a product of our environments we are, whether those are our home environments growing up mm-hmm. or the cultural environments we're a part of. So so at some point, we begin to look at it. And I know if I even look at my personal family story, yeah. um, <clears throat> you know, I heard about all these horrible things growing up about the, about the Holocaust, Holocaust and the Nazis and the like. And, yeah. and I studied it first from the standpoint of a child and the stories I would hear in my family. And then I became a history major and I studied it from a historical perspective and then I studied it later from the standpoint of an organizational development perspective that is how were they able to shift the minds of all of these people in such a dramatic way in such a short period of time that's a great question but the great that the great um sort of aha moment was um when and I don't remember exactly when this happened when I realized that Germans were not inherently bad people um, that they got caught up in a collective madness that has taken over culture after culture. If we look at our history, whether it's Rwanda or uh, South Africa or uh, Turkey or um, you know any of these cases of of genocide, or or for that matter, the Middle Passage, you know, the passage of African slaves to the United States, or mm-hmm. or a genocide against Native American people, you know, all of these cases of genocide in history, where people, individual people got caught up in a societal madness, in a societal structure in which an entire culture had deemed certain people less viable, um, less um, 
and humane. Exactly, less as human beings, yeah, and, and yeah. therefore we can justify killing them or or caging them or doing whatever we're doing. You know, very much like some people are doing right now in our society with children down at the border. You know, in order to put a child in a cage, rip them from their parents, and put them in a cage, you've got to have a very different sense of the humanity of that individual. Because if you see that individual as fully human in the same sense as you are, um, then the natural tendency is to put yourself in that circumstance and realize how inhumane it is. So, so it's no accident that in history when one group of people mm -hmm. um, targets another group of people that we come up with names for them that are less than human whether it was the names we called Vietnamese soldiers in Vietnam War when we called them gooks I say this with, right. you know obviously not using that word but just describing it sure. to the n-word to you know to the words when we call women the b-word or the c-word when we do any of these things what we're doing is we're actually diminishing their humanity by changing them from human beings into this other thing called into the other called you know japs or wops or whatever you know all of these these different characterizations that we right. have which are basically a way of saying you're less human than i am therefore i'm justified in do whatever i need to do to control you that's a really really important comment especially in the context of the political climate today where name calling has now become somewhat normal yes. as it pertains to yeah. people in positions of power yeah and, and and what hearing what you're saying about this you know i think allows the audience on the on this podcast to understand the implications if we continue to go down this path of what that may lead to yeah yeah i mean if we look at our current political structure for example we see that what uh, president trump is doing relative to calling people names whether he's you know lion ted or you know whatever you know sleepy joe or all these kinds of things he's using that exact way of thinking and this mm. is something that actually um, the conservative movement in the United States does a much better job of than the more progressive or liberal movement. So and it goes back to Newt Gingrich, who actually trained people what language to use and, and said, here's the language we're going to use to describe Democrats. And because he really understood um, kind the of power like a, of a mad genius, he understood the power of language. And he understood that if you begin to label somebody, if you begin to label, for example, Medicare for All as socialist medicine, socialized medicine, mm -hmm. um, then people don't stop and ask the question, well, wait a second, but don't we provide school for all? Don't we provide postal service for all? Don't we provide um, traffic control for all? Don't we, don't, don't we do this for lots of important things in our society? You know, we decide that this is something that's for the public interest. Mm -hmm. And so we say people don't have to pay for school. They can have free public school because it's in the public interest for people to, to be educated. And, and so if you look at it from that standpoint, you would say, well, it's not so far-fetched to say it's appropriate from a public standpoint for people to be healthy. So we're going to do public health in the same way. You know, we're going to have government-provided health care. But if and if we you describe it that way, most people will say, yeah, well, that's that's logical. Even if I disagree, it's logical. But if you say and said, no, this is socialist medicine, then what ends up happening is people get this. Oh my God, it, I'm left with how that makes me feel, as opposed to what it actually is. And I think that that it's it's a it's a cunning strategy, and it's very effective. Oh, that's really great insight, Howard. Um, so this idea of the power of language, we're applying it now in the context of the current political environment. Yes. So let's, let's fold this back into your work and your life. So, so you became attuned to understanding the power of language as you were studying histories that pertain to the Jewish identity in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. That's how you kind of came to this realization of the importance um, of it? Yeah, I don't know that I would attribute it to any one specific thing, but it certainly was very apparent yeah. there, you know, yeah. when, when Hitler and, and the Nazis described Jews as vermin. Um, the same thing was true in Rwanda, you know, when the, when the Hutus described the Tutsis as cockroaches, you know. Right. You see this in almost every case of genocide that people, you know, all the names that Native Americans were given 
given right. to being called savages and, and all these right. kinds of things. So right. we see time and time again, historically, that this is part and parcel of the dehumanization of people that leads to us being able to then you know, control them or in the worst case scenario, actually kill them. Dehumanize them in that sense. So let's fold this into, uh, gosh, that's really curious. So how did this understanding of the power of language play out in your work? Mm-hmm. Right, so working is, uh, let's talk about that really quick. How would you describe what it is you do? Not now, but uh, as you started, right. you're kind of, because right now yeah. for everybody that's listening, Howard is uh, is beautifully retired and uh, he's about to uh, move out to his farm that he just recently uh, kind of took uh, the decision to buy and, and, yeah. and kind of have, yeah. Well, I like to actually, I like to say rewired, not retired. I'm, Re- not, done, I'm not done yet. I, I did sell my company, Cross, a year and a half ago. And yeah. so I'm not, I'm not running that company on a day-to-day basis, but I'm still very much active. Sure. And, um, but I am at the stage in life where I want to try to do some different things and have some more flexibility. Sure. Um, the work itself, I, you know, I came out, uh, like I said before, I came out of civil rights work. I came out of doing all that kind of work. And so when I started doing diversity work um, back in the 80s, most of it was very much... Um, from that same framework of social justice work. And so mm-hmm. our orientation um, tended to be coming from the us versus them dynamic. You know, we were there to, to show people why it was that this was important and how it was they needed to be better people and treat people better. Great. So so you're, you're taking that paradigm because of the work that you had done before in terms of being an activist, mm-hmm. whether it's on campus, being a teacher. In this, so that's, that's where it's coming from. Yes. Yeah. That's and in, inside of that context, you know, the mindset is bad things are happening, they need to be fixed. So people and you're are responsible being, for it. That's right. So that's people right. people need, are being treated unfairly, people aren't being given the same opportunities, etc. Mm-hmm. We need to find a better way to do this, we need to fix this. And it was all well, very well intentioned. And to be fair, we didn't have a lot of information to work with because we were creating a new way of doing this work. We were creating an industry. It did, there was no diversity industry back then, 35 years ago. Um, there were random people around the country who were doing the work, uh, some of whom a lot of us knew each other or knew right. of each other. Right. Um, but it wasn't like there was this massive industry like there is now of diversity and inclusion work. So a lot of it was experimental. And when I think back to some of the things that we did or some of the things that people did during that time, it's like it almost makes me shudder. But it was mostly oriented towards, you know, who's the bad guy and how do we fix them? Within um, a company? Within, within an organization. Within an organization. Or a company, a school, or whatever else. So, so help us understand what that means because, you know, who would the bad guy be? The person causing the problems? The, the person name-calling people? Like, what does yeah. that actually mean? Yeah, who's the racist and sexist in the room? You know, who's the person who's, who's, who's demonstrating racism or sexism or whatever is in there was? In those days, in, in the mid-'80s when we started, there was very little talk even of, um, of sexual orientation for the most part because right. very few people were out, and, or relatively, of course. I mean, there were some people who were out, of course, but... Um, but relatively, it didn't come up all that often. Um, but but that came into play sometimes. Mm. You, you you occasionally would see some of the other issues. But the but the main focus was if I can teach you to be a better person, mm-hmm. then you'll treat people more fairly. Then people will have their opportunity, and and ultimately the organization will work more effectively. You know, and and that's foundationally makes sense when you think about it from a rational standpoint. The only problem is that what we now know that we didn't realize so profoundly then, but what we've learned in the in the decades since then, is that human beings are not rational we're rationalizing you know that that very little of what we do is actually rational what mostly we do is we look at the evidence around us and we try to figure out how the way we think things should be would work relative to that evidence so we take the evidence that supports our point of view we ignore the evidence that disregards our point of view um, we justify to ourselves and then to other people all that stuff and of course again we see this being played out so blatantly politically right now when we look at as we sit here the, the impeachment trial is going on yeah. and the same thing is said and we see two 
two completely opposite reactions to that same thing being said. And you got to shake your head sometimes and say, regardless of which side you're on, you shake your head and you say, what color is the sky in your world? You know, it's like, how can you see that in that way? But of course, whatever, whatever background experience we have that has led to our interpretation of the world filters what we see. 100%. That's right. Yeah, we are the culmination of all the experiences that we have and that kind of determines how we see the world. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. So really quickly, I just want to uh, plant a flag here because I think this is fascinating and I often say this when I teach, but I love the fact that you actually just said it too. It's that um, human beings are not rational creatures. We are rationalizing creatures. Mm -hmm. And that for me was a watershed moment in terms of understanding or better trying to understand human behavior. Yes, absolutely. So uh, when did you come to that realization? I read it, uh, I think about two years ago and since reading it, I thought to myself, oh my God, life is just so much easier now that I understand this simple (laughs) framework, right? Well, in the work itself, um, it started to emerge for me um, in the 90s um, okay. when I, we were doing all this work and I would increasingly find myself in circumstances where I would have these moments and I would be shaking my head like, why did that happen or how mm-hmm. does that fit in? Yeah, there's one that I often share as sort of a pivotal moment because it was very impactful for me emotionally. I was down in Monroe, Louisiana, which is in context is where David, south. where David Duke had his headquarters when he ran for governor of Louisiana. So it's 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 it was old South. This is now twenty more than twenty years ago. Now it's in the nineties. So really quickly, can mm-hmm. you explain for 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 the audience who David Duke was? Yeah, yeah. David yep. Duke, of course, is the um is was a Klansman, uh, a Ku Klux Klansman who. Um, maybe the most prominent one in the United States for many decades now, who um, who ran for governor of Louisiana and all, and got, actually got the Democratic nomination for governor of Louisiana or Democratic Republican, I forget now. But actually. he got the nomination. But he got the nomination. Actually ran, but but was defeated ultimately. Um, but so he's very prominent, very prominent Klansman. Yeah. And um, and we, so we were doing this workshop. It was for the newspaper down there, and um, it was a two day workshop. And on the first day. You know, it was a very uh, rigorous conversation. People got into talking about issues of race, especially in that region, um, for obvious reasons, and uh, mostly African-Americans who were talking about the impact it had on them. And there was a young white guy in the group who was mm-hmm. a pressman in the, news, in the newspaper. I don't remember his name now, but he, he wearing you know jeans and a flannel shirt, and he didn't say much the first day. And then on the second day, about an hour before lunch, he raises his hand. And you know, when you're a facilitator, it's always good to see new voices in the room. And so, yeah. so he starts to share and he says, I feel conflicted. I said, what do you feel conflicted about? And he starts to share. And as he's sharing, he's got his head down the whole time looking at his lap. And he okay. says, well, you know, I grew up in such and such, mentions a rural area outside of the city. He says, my daddy and my granddaddy were my heroes growing up, taught me to fish, taught me to hunt, best men I ever knew. Granddaddy was the pastor of our church. They taught me what it was to be a man. And then he stops. And he's silent for long enough that I was—I remember feeling like about to say, "What's your point?" When he looks up with tears in his eyes and says, "They were in the clan," and the whole room inhaled, uh, a lot like your expression on your face right, right. now. <laughs> my eyes are bulging on <laughs> right. my face right now. Yeah. And um, and he went went ahead to talk about it, and and uh, I'll never forget this line. He said, "It wasn't much talked about, but it wasn't much hidden either." And he says that um, if I were to, and I said, well, what, what are you conflicted about? He says, well, if I were to buy into what's being said here, it means my grandfather and my father were bad people. And I know that they were the best men I ever knew. So I don't know how to sort this out. How yeah. incredibly honest. Exactly. This was in a room full of people. Exactly right. About 25 vulnerable. people. Yeah. And that, that was the thing that really struck me about it. Because, you know, in the old way of doing things, what we would have done at that time, Right. is to show him why, in fact, they were bad people and how the history of the United States and of racism and of slavery and, and all this stuff demonstrates why. But there was something, exactly your point, which is, Bakhtash, which is that 
he was so vulnerable and so honest and so courageous that he really touched me. And so instead I pulled up a chair and I said, can we talk about this? And we sat in front of the room, the two of us, and just had a conversation. What was that like for him? And how did it influence him? And where does he see the contradiction in his current experience? And how does he deal with those contradictions? So, you know, the human experience behind what he was saying. Right. And we eventually broke for lunch an hour later and yeah. everybody actually applauded him. And then I look out in the room and there he is sitting not 18 inches from the strongest African-American male voice in the room and the two of them are just engaged. And I thought to myself, whatever I did that had that happen, I've got to figure out a way to replicate that. But, but more importantly, I remember flying back mm. and sitting in the airplane like it was yesterday. It was that impactful to me. And this is now you know, close to 30 years, 25, 30 years ago. Um, I remember sitting there and saying to myself, two major things. One was, if this isn't about turning people into good people, what is it about? Because this was clearly a good guy. You know, so there's got to be something here more than just being good people. There's got to be something about understanding how we're thinking that's a factor here. And then the second piece, which really hit me in the gut, was could I actually honestly say that if I grew up in his story, I would see the world any differently than he did? You became empathetic. Yeah, and so I began to realize this is all a function of who we are. And it gets back to our conversations about systems that you and I had earlier. Yeah. So we begin to see how it is that the system that this guy grew up in trained him to be this person. Just like the system that I grew up in, growing up in a family with more sensitivity to some of these issues, trained me to do what I'm doing. And we tend to attribute all of this to our personal accomplishment and the like, but the truth is that we are a product of the system we grew up in. Oh my gosh, so for you, just to reiterate that, so for you, witnessing this gentleman come out so honestly and being so vulnerable led to you literally having a transformational sort of understanding of how people are and where they come from and that people are a product of their environment. Yeah, this and that, was it. that's right. And that triggered a whole line of, of study for me. So, so then it's like, well, wow, if this isn't just being about good people, what is it about? So I started to study different models of identity and You're right. looking at Jungian psychology. And, and I, right. as it turned out, my own spiritual path was leading me into studying Buddhism and Hinduism and Sufism at the time. And all of those are very different in terms of how we see personality that we see more in more Western frameworks. Yeah. And so that and and so and and the cool thing about being a consultant is you can learn something today and teach it tomorrow. So the more I would implant this into my learning, the more I found people were responsive in a different way. And then and then from there I went to studying some of the new research that was coming around around the conscious bias that was emerging in the mid 90s. Great. So I think this is a great moment to kind of go into this work. You've actually written a book about unconscious bias. Can we talk about that really quickly? Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. My second book, Everyday Bias, focused on unconscious bias. And so this is your second book. Uh, is it important to kind of talk? Does it, did this come out of your first book? Well, the first book, yeah. My first book, Reinvent Diversity, definitely talked about unconscious bias um, in, a, in kind of the early stages. That came out in 2011. And so. So you the, framed this conversation earlier by saying that, uh, you know, like the world called upon you to essentially write about this. You wrote a paper, it went viral, then it led to a book. So let's, let's help us understand how that happened. Oh, okay. sure, sure. Yeah. So, yeah. So what happened was, so I started to, as I said, I started to explore these things and, and just at of my own curiosity and most of the work that I've done has followed my own curiosity it's just the nature of the way my mind works and like I said the more we could apply it the more we realize that people responded in different ways instead mm -hmm. of coming in and saying you're a bad person I'm here to fix you 
we started, which was the old, which model. was sort of the old model. But basically, the new model is: let me tell you how you're making your decisions in ways you may not realize, and that may have you make decisions that are inconsistent even with your own values. Now, people were much more open to that, particularly people in leadership, because what I began to realize was very few people wake up in the morning. It's a little bit like I said before, and, and wring their hands and say, "How can I suppress people today?" It's not the nature of how most people run their organizations. I'm not saying there aren't bad people out there. I've spent a lot of time with bad people around this issue. But for the most part, that's not what happened. Mm-hmm. So I started to apply the work, and, and, and then it was a series of good fortune and circumstances. You know, somebody who was one of my clients who had seen me do some of this work yeah. was on a planning group for a big conference of diversity leaders. Um, they invited me to do a keynote. I ended up doing the keynote. The keynote went really well. So yeah. the organization, Diversity Best Practices, yeah. said, why don't you write a paper for us? I wrote the first paper that I wrote, uh, Proven Strategies for Addressing Unconscious Bias. That went viral. Um, it's still out there on the internet generating hits. You know. What's the name of it, just so we it's know? It's called Proven Strategies for Addressing Unconscious Bias in a Workplace. And and it became sort of a seminal paper in the this um, this whole concept opening up. It wasn't like I created it. All I was doing was sharing with people some cool stuff that I learned. But you know, the timing being everything in life, and that led to my first book, Reinventing Diversity. Yeah. Um, one big section of which is on unconscious bias, but it was really more about looking at the whole diversity, the way we do diversity work in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was successful within the field. And then that led to my second book, uh, Everyday Bias, which is the one you're talking about, yeah, which yeah. which ends up coming out just by coincidence coming out one month after Michael Brown is killed in Ferguson and the whole world now is looking at unconscious bias so that becomes a bestseller and we're off running from there so so just to kind of recap this trajectory here because I think it's important for those that are really curious about your work and how they can apply it to their lives is this all started Howard with your innate curiosity and the reasons as to why people do what they do they may not understand it but they're doing it your job you felt like was to figure out what framework these people are working from, where they're coming from. And it was all like the catalyst for all this was your curiosity in people. Yeah. 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 And, and, and as I said before, it also aligned with my own kind of path in personal transformation that I was going through my own exploration to what yeah. it is to be a human being, you know, and I had done, you know, various different programs and I was studying Eastern philosophy and, you know, I'd done personal transformation and leadership programs and all this kind of stuff. And I began to realize that, you know, our tendency is to deal with the world externally. So we look at a problem and we say, what's that problem? How do I fix that problem? Where we often don't look is, why is that even a problem to me? What is it triggering over here that that's bothersome? Why is it that this person is irritating to me? You know, I, we, we live life like if somebody's irritating to us or some circumstance is irritating to us, that it must be that there's something wrong with that person or circumstance. Versus realizing, wait a second, why do I even have this problem in the first when, place? When in reality, what we, know, what we now know through studying human beings and seeing how they work is that when you're hysterical, it's likely historical. There's a reason that, you know, there's a reason you're having such a strong emotional reaction to that, which is that it's triggering something from your background. So the very simple example I like to use is, uh, let's say one morning, my wife, Leslie and I are standing in the kitchen and she says to me, honey, will you take out the trash? Now I have no problem taking out the trash. Um, but, um, this one morning when she said that to me, um, I got irritated for some reason and I stopped and I'm thinking to myself why am I getting irritated mm-hmm. and so I just stopped for a minute and look and I realized that at that moment I had become seven years old and this was my mother I was dealing with that my mom and I used to have these righteous battles over the trash you know take out the trash I will no do it now mom I'll do it when I'm ready you know, do it you know and so at that moment for some reason something about the way she said it or where my mindset was at a particular time triggered that previous memory and so I had a reaction that was not to her at the moment because there's nothing wrong with her asking me to take out the trash I even do it by myself sometimes you know 
But um, but at that moment, something about the way she said it triggered that limbic memory of my mother saying it, and I become the seven-year-old resisting. Now, in that particular case, I saw it very clearly at the moment, and I just laughed, and I said, no problem, Mom. And she, Leslie and I have this language in our relationship where we know exactly what we mean. And so she she laughed, and that was the end of it. But but we do this all the time. You yeah. know, We meet somebody, and what our brain does is goes back to our our memory, to our hippocampus, and says, yeah. and says what does this person remind me of? You know, you deal with this as yeah. somebody who presented the appearance of the kind the part of the world you come from and right. so if somebody is islamophobic or is afraid of those issues and they see somebody who presents in the way that you present that image goes back to their memory center their memory center says oh my god this person looks like the person everybody says they're terrorists and all of a sudden you know i feel uncomfortable in fact i can tell you a really funny story about sure, that sure, um, sure, sure. Um, i have a good friend sukhvinder obi who is a um, canadian a neuroscientist he's at mcmaster university and is one of the most brilliant people in the world now studying the brain and power and the impact of power on the brain and very very dear friend of mine and he tells me this story and he's a sick he's a turban sick so sure. so he sure. wears a turban and a beard all the time sure and, sure, uh, sure. and uh, he says his uncle uh, one day shortly after 9 11 was at the airport and his uncle also is a turban sick and and um and he says his uncle is sitting in the in the um, waiting area of the terminal, and um, a man comes in dressed in what he described as Muslim garb, which I assume means a skull cap and, and a robe and sure. a beard and the like. Sure. And he says, I couldn't keep my eyes off this guy. Everywhere he went, I watched him, he said. But then at some point I stopped and I realized everybody else was watching me. <laughs> you know, And so... You know, so it's like, you know, th this kind of irrationality that we were talking about before is out right. there, you know, that, that we, this is what we're doing constantly. We're looking at the world through the lens of our background experience. We interpret what we see through the lens of that background experience. And if there's something dangerous in our background experience associated with that person or something less than even, it may not even be dangerous. It may be, I'm assuming this person is less intelligent or less competent or less warm and friendly or whatever it is, then I project onto that person the expectation that, that you will be that stereotype that I've had. And the mind is doing this all the time, not just with people, but with almost everything we do. That's fascinating, Howard. Oh my gosh. So the framework that you essentially painted for us is fantastically eloquent. So let's dig deep into how we unpack those thoughts. How do you get people to reconsider what they think? Mm -hmm. Well, it starts, I think, in the most important component of that is to begin with the recognition that we don't think the way we think we think that we don't see the world the way we actually the way it actually is it's a phenomenon that um, we have to undo this phenomenon the psychologists called naive realism that um, we have this naive sense that the world is the way we think it is as opposed to that what it actually is which is an interpretation of what we're seeing based on our own personal experience. So you or I look at this as a chair, sure. and we know this is a chair, but if I were to drop this in the middle of the Kalahari Desert, um, people wouldn't contact. know whether it was a weapon or a shield or a cage for something or firewood. You know, I mean, it, it could be any of those things. In fact, it would be more likely firewood than anything else. Um, but for us, it's a piece of quality furniture that, know, we're, sitting whatever, that we're sitting yeah. on and it has a particular usage. And, and, you know, we know this happens in, in, you know, thousands and thousands of different ways that we interpret the same things in, in different ways. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, as, um, you know, I think we were saying earlier, you know, we, we're, we're seeing people watching the political Political dynamic right now, and we see that you know the very same statement interpreted differently. Black Lives Matter is a great example. You know, we have this right. very this very deep division about these three words, Black Lives Matter, when we're actually talking about four words, but the fourth word is invisible, and it's different for each group. Because when when I read Black Lives Matter, those three words, the way I read it actually means Black Lives Matter too. 
when somebody else reads those three words, what they may perceive is what they're saying is only Black Lives Matter. And those fourth words are different, but they're invisible to the two groups. And without understanding that perception of where we're coming from, we can't really understand how it is that people have the interpretation they do. So it starts with our looking at ourselves and saying, how am I interpreting this that it's affecting me in this way? And then we can begin a process where we begin to dissemble that. So we can begin to say, okay, um, I'm reacting to that because this person reminds me of such and such, or I'm reacting to this because I've gotten some signal somewhere. And we don't even have to know where that comes from. So if I meet you at the beginning of an interview, for yeah. example, and uh, let's say I'm interviewing for, I've got a job opening and you come in to interview and sure. you know, Bakhtash sits down and what I see is a man who looks Middle Eastern, for lack sure. of a better way of, um, of characterizing it, sure. then, and, and I have a particular reaction to you, I've gotta be willing, or, or the way I break through this stuff is by being willing to stop and say, okay, I'm having a reaction. He hasn't even said anything yet, so it can't possibly be about him. I don't even know anything about him yet. Mm -hmm. So obviously I'm projecting something onto this man. I'm projecting on my stereotypes and my assumptions about him. Just being aware of that without even knowing where they come from is in and of itself a breakthrough because as soon as I name it as a projection, it stops being you. As soon as I own it as my projection of you, I now know that it's not you. It's my projection of you. So just naming it as a projection based on your awareness of actually doing it is the breakthrough moment. That's right. You see, as soon as something, as soon as we can see something is an interpretation, we stop treating like it is that thing. Put it in a more benign framework. Think of roller coasters. You know, sure. Some people say to you, roller coasters are scary. Well, we know roller coasters aren't scary. Roller coasters are inanimate objects. Scary doesn't live in the roller coaster. Scary lives in the person's interpretation of the roller coaster. Right. And if you, it would take you know two minutes or 20 seconds for somebody to get that realization. You say, what you're actually saying is you are frightened of a roller coaster, correct? And the person would say, of course, that's what I meant. That's what you I meant. Yeah. Well, of course, the same thing happens with people. That person is scary. Except with people, we tend to keep those characterizations associated with the object of the, of the evaluation as opposed to owning it over here. It's a lot harder with people for me to say something about that person frightens me. It doesn't mean they're necessarily frightening, but something about them frightens me. Now, it could be their voice reminds me of my father when he was angry, and so that triggers it. It could be they remind me of somebody who's hurt me before. It could right. be they remind me of a stereotype that I've seen or a characterization in the media. You know, It could be any number of thousands of things that are triggering that, but the awareness that it's something that's triggering that is the first key moment. Great. I love that example about the roller coaster. Yeah. It really helps. So then what's the next step after that? Well, then we have to start saying, okay, what are other possible interpretations here? Okay, so, possible interpretations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So let's say let's say I shake your hand at the beginning of an interview and you shake your hand you shake my hand more softly than I'm used to because you may come from one of the thirty or forty percent of the world where people shake hands more softly than we do in the United States. You know, here it's like a wrestling match, you know, how, yeah, it's all, how military it's handshakes. all military handshakes, you know. And my first thought, because in our culture, um, soft handshakes are associated with weakness. Um, my first thought is, well, you know, this guy is weak. You know, ah. he's, he's not going to be a strong performer, you know. And, and the mind does this, you know, we make these associative connections without them being necessarily rational. In fact, you know, who, who understands this better than anybody is Madison Avenue. I mean, Madison Avenue plays this stuff. You know, look at Subaru commercials. They're brilliant about this. You know, people with puppy, you know, puppy playing in the sandbox, puppy playing Frisbee in the backyard, dog running next to people by the river, old dog with gray hairs in the back of the car. Subaru, 
You know, it's like, it's, it's not even about the car. You don't even know what the commercial is about until the last frame of the commercial. It's not it's, even important. It's generating a feeling of affection for these dogs and then glomming it on to the Subaru so that we transfer that affection. So, so this is the way the mind works and we know the mm -hmm. mind works this way. So if you have a, you know, let's say you have a, gen, a, 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 a softer handshake because you come from an Asian or a Middle Eastern culture or someplace else where, where soft hand, some South American cultures where, where handshakes are, are generally softer. Um, and so at that moment, um, I'm making this assessment. I could stop and say, okay, what other possibilities are there? Well, there's a possibility that came from a culture with a softer handshake. There's a possibility that they've got an injury. There's a possibility they're recovering from an injury. Okay. There are any number of these other possibilities. So the truth is the handshake is just a handshake. I don't really know what it means. So now maybe I might find out what other information I need to do to see whether or not this person is strong. So, so I begin to, it starts with, I like to say replacing some of our exclamation points with question marks. Right. So this this idea of knowing that there could be more possibilities in the sense of being more curious about, wait a second, why did that happen? Mm -hmm. Why am I reacting it this way to it? Why why are these thoughts happening based on that handshake? Yeah. So then you're left with, in the case of the interview, I'm left with, let me get the, let me get the other guy and see what he's really made of. You know. So it's it's this yeah. idea of digging deeper, right. peeling peeling the, the layers That's back right. to figure out exactly what's going on. Yes. And so much of it is an understanding understanding people's stories. You know, because the narratives of our lives give us the world that we see. And, um, you know, and when you understand people's stories, even if you don't agree with their point of view, it gives you a better sense of why a human being over there has that point of view, as opposed to there's some terrible thing other than human that has this point of view. I can give you a very quick example. I yeah. did a mediation once with a... Um, something that came up in a public forum here in, in DC. Um, in a, it was a Leadership Greater Washington event and there was a discord between a, a white gay guy who was in the group and an African-American man who, who stated in the group that in my church we consider homosexuality a sin and it really upset the whole group and the gay, the gay guy left. Okay. So I ended up doing a, a mediation with the two of them and, and the first thing I did was ask them to share their stories and the gay guy shared his story which was not an unusual one. He grew up in... Um, an environment where he had relatively good support. He came out as a teenager. His parents were pretty supportive. He went on to be very successful in life. He was married to another guy, and they had been married for a number of years and had mm -hmm. children and the whole the whole bit. You know, yeah. the other guy shared his story, which is he grew up in a very poor part of D.C., a very dangerous part of D.C. Um, actually, it's been George's County. Now that I think about it, and um, four or five of his friends growing up had died due to gang violence, and he said the only thing that had kept him safe was the church. His mother insisted he participate in the church. And he eventually became a deacon in his church, a lay minister and the like. And he said, I do not question the church. I do not question my pastor. And of course, you know, from that standpoint, the other guy could look and say, wow, you know, I don't like what you believe, but I can see how you could get there. I could see how that lifeline that kept you alive when all of your friends were dying could be so important to you that you can't let go of it. You know, he could see that. Now, now that was just the beginning of a conversation which went into many other iterations and the two of them ended up sitting together side by side and leading a conversation with their whole with the whole group that the event had happened in. Um, but it was that really seminal moment where he could see if I put myself in your story, a little bit like I said about my plane ride, you know, if I could put myself in your story, could I actually say I would see the world different from you? And this is where we find the human beings can really connect through our stories. So what we're talking about is the power of story actually leads to a greater sense of understanding of the other. Yes, exactly right. So the work that you're doing essentially is trying to get to a place where human beings can be in a mindset of asking questions, 
based on curiosity where it leads to a greater sense of understanding. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's where we look for transformation. And I'm not saying, by the way, that if you're dealing with something egregious right. that you you know that you don't deal with it. It's like you know a, a, a patient who's brought into the emergency room and is bleeding out, the doctor doesn't come over them and say, okay, let's evaluate here what are the various... <laughs> no, stop the freaking bleeding. Right, I mean, right. that's what you need to do. Totally. And there are times when you have people who do things that are so outrageous and, and so obvious um, that they need to be dealt with in pretty draconian ways. It's a, this is unacceptable behavior in our organization or in our society for that matter. Now, one of the challenges we have with what's going on in society right now that gets back to language is, yeah. of course, some of those agreed upon societal rules of operating, for lack of a better way of putting yeah, it, yeah, are being systems. challenged by the fact that, that we've got a reemergence of this really caustic language and name calling and all this kind of stuff. And once you, know, once you have um, a, a high official like the President of the United States who's going to call people children's names and, and you know, make up stuff about this, then why can't I do it is the mindset that happens. And so, I mean, I might have an opinion about it, but I can't necessarily make a qualitative jump that say that, you know, for example, Donald Trump supports white supremacists mm-hmm. who go out and say, you know, Jews are taking over our lives or whatever they're saying. Um, but I do think that we can say that the fact of the way he uses language has encouraged people to use more of that kind of language, to call people names more, to say those kinds of things. And this is where I think we have to be really careful, no matter what side of the political spectrum you represent, that the things that you're doing to get what you want don't create more problems than the problem you were trying to address to begin with. No, I think it's a valuable point, Howard. Thank you for sharing that. Gosh, um, I don't want to go down that trajectory because mm-hmm. it just opens up a whole different sure. can of worms. But what I love to do is talk about this idea of language. And in your Google talk, I believe you talked about this idea of having courageous conversations. Yeah. And I'm in a place in my life right now where I have finally been able to have the language in order to have the conversations that I want to have based on meaning and understanding. So I'm curious to know, number one, help us understand what courageous conversations mean. And then number two, let's talk about how language is folded into this idea of having courageous conversations. Sure, absolutely. Well, first of all, we start with the understanding that most human beings are at least cautious, if not hesitant about any kind of confrontation or conflict. And that makes perfect sense. I mean, if we think about it from the standpoint of our biological roots and our anthropological roots, you know, we go back to a time where human beings, if you got angry with somebody, you were likely to hit them. And if you're likely to hit them, you're likely to hurt them or maybe even kill them. So trying to keep people from getting angry with you makes a lot of sense. Um, even as we've gotten away from as much physical violence, we know people can still get emotionally angry with you. People can um, reject you or, or ostracize you or, or anything be else. Or, or be anything. bullies or anything like that, make you feel small. So right. so most of us avoid conflict. I mean, you run into the occasional person who who just sort of loves conflict and in there, you know, often the saying is, you know, it's like wrestling with a pig in the mud. At some point you realize the pig likes it. Um, you know, <laughs> some point you run into people who do, who do like conflict I or who that. culturally are encouraged more, you know, so somebody right. who grows up in New York, for example, New York city, much more likely to engage in conflict overtly than somebody who grows up in, you know, a in Jackson, Mississippi, because, right. because it's a more quote polite kind of society, whereas New York is kind of in your face. So we've got that. But we also know that we've got these really challenging issues that we're working with in the workplace and in other places. And so one of the things that we found that we can do is to begin to, first of all, we start by saying, you know, is there value in understanding this conflict and resolving this conflict 
Um, because mostly when we're afraid of the immediacy of something powerful, like somebody's angry reaction, which is right. an, it kind of can be an instant, almost like a lightning bolt kind of reaction, right. um, we're much more focused on the potential risk of that reaction than we are the drip, drip, drip of negative impact we've had before. And you know, we're talking about the fable of the frog in the water, you know, that you throw a frog into burning hot water. They'll jump right out. Right. But if you put them in cool water and gently turn the water up slowly by slowly, they'll eventually cook to death, you know, because they won't realize what's happening to right, them. And right, I think right. that that happens to a lot of us. We leave issues unresolved, which are cooking us to death, whether they're in our personal relationships or our work situations, rather than deal with them because we're afraid of being scalded by the heat of the instant. We don't realize that we're being cooked to death anyway by these gradual things. So the first piece is to help people understand why it's valuable, why it's viable. The conversation. To to pay attention to these things. Ah, okay. And that can be that can be in the context of a particular circumstance. So when I talk to leaders, I'll say, look, I'm, I'm assuming that you want to make decisions consistent with your values, consistent with getting the best talent for your organization, consistent with promoting that best talent, with evaluating that best talent, with giving them great opportunities. So let's say I'm a leader, and going back to you, you come in, mm -hmm. and I see you, and in my mind... I go back to my hippocampus and my memory center says, wait a second, this guy comes from a, came from Afghanistan mm -hmm. and he looks just like those people I've seen in pictures of terrorists. Then none of this is conscious necessarily, by the way. This is all very quick synaptic responses, the total of which takes 0.2 milliseconds, you know. He looks like a terrorist. He comes from places where terrorists come from. I say looks like a terrorist with quotes, obviously. Right. Um, comes from a place where terrorists I know I've heard come from. Therefore, I start to emotionally react to you as if that's how you are. So I'm more hesitant. I'm more circumspect. I'm I even physically react. Suspicious, exactly. I even physically react. But I'm not even aware that all that stuff is related to that conscious thought. All I know is that you make me feel this way. It's amazing how the brain works. Exactly right. And, that, and that's what we do. And we know it happens all the time. And, and it happens with people all over the spectrum. People look at white men that way. If they're used to white men being unfair to them, they will make an assumption that white men will be unfair to them. They'll look at whoever. You know, this is the nature of how we evaluate the world. And, and if you think about it from the standpoint of the purpose of the mind um, being a protection machine, ultimately, our personalities are generally mostly oriented towards survival. There's actually some rational thought behind this. If I look out there at a person and I make an assessment, do they appear dangerous or not dangerous? If they appear dangerous, I, I'm a little bit more protective. There's something rational to that. You know, mm -hmm. just like if I'm about to touch a hot stove and I've been burned by hot stoves, the problem is the associations aren't rational. You know, why I've determined that you're dangerous is not rational. Because if I know anything about your story, it obviously indicates that you're not one of those people. You just happen to look like one of those people. You know? But the mind plays but tricks the on mind, us. But the mind goes to a more simplistic defense. And, right. and if we think about it, if you were to take a brain and evolve it over thousands of years, would you likely evolve it to be more sensitive to threat coming your way or reward? Well, the answer is obvious, threat. Because if reward comes your way and you're not ready for it, nice surprise. If threat comes your way and you're not ready for it, dead. So, so our tendency is overwhelmingly to have a bias towards foe rather than friend. And that, that feeds all of this stuff. Right. It's all about this idea of survival. That's exactly right. Fascinating. So we are predispositioned to essentially think like this. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. That's what you're telling us. Yeah. Now, uh, this idea of uh, courageous conversations, when you're in your work, when you've talked to people about this, does this resonate with people in organizations, whether it's in, let's say, in, in the professional sense or in the personal sense? Does it work? Do these lead to transformations in the workplace? Yeah, absolutely. And, and because the piece that, that we didn't get to yet that, yeah. that I wanted to name also is 
So once people, once you convince people they want to have these conversations, there's still this question, well, how? You know, how do uh-huh. I have this conversation? Yeah, what's so, the framework of so the language looked, in which I've looked at my own resistance to have the conversation. I've looked at my own interpretations, my own in my own um, assumptions here. Yeah. But I haven't yet, I don't have a skill yet to know how to have these conversations because we know that they can blow up. So so this is where, you know, creating a particular tool or a way of creating a container for the conversation is really important. So there's several different ways, you know, to do that. I mean, there's several different tools that we use depending upon the circumstance. Sure, sure. But almost all of them are dialoguing tools of one thing or another. So one of them, for example, comes from a woman named Elizabeth Lesser, who was one of the co-founders of the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, and she created this tool, which she calls Taking the Other to Lunch, and the series of questions that you could ask, which is what I happened to use with that mediation I was talking about, where you know each person answers these questions, you know, one after the other, and, and you deepen the conversation using these questions. Um, you know, there are other tools which are conflict wow. resolution tools. But what we found is when we bring people together, even in mass numbers, so Caroline Wonga, who's the chief diversity officer at Target, for example, is doing a lot of interesting stuff around this. James Momon, who is at General Mills, and, and he and I have done a number of these sessions with as many as 600 people in the room, where you put people at tables and you give them a framework and you say, here's the framework that we're going to use to have this conversation. And people begin to realize, wow, we, we can actually have this conversation and recognize each other's humanity. We can disagree, but still recognize that and have empathy for where the other person's coming from. Wow, maybe I could do this with my wife. Maybe I could do this with my teenagers. Maybe I could do this with my coworkers. Maybe I could do it with my next door neighbor. You know, And at a time when we know that thousands of families, for example, have canceled Thanksgiving dinner the last few years rather than be at the table with old Uncle Ernie who voted differently than they did in the election, right. being able to find ways to have these conversations that, that a container of safety right. um, provides that psychological safety that people need to be able to talk about difficult issues. Howard, that's fascinating. Gosh, I feel like we could pick your brain all day. <laughs> well, I just want to be respectful of your time here, yeah. Howard, and I want to go through... Um, we're here coming up on the end of the conversation yeah. here. And so what I like to do is I like to do a rapid fire session where I ask you questions and sure. I'd love for you to kind of. Sure, like uh, ESPN, right? Exactly, exactly. exactly. And so I'd love for you to answer, uh, you know, the first thing that comes to your mind, please just let us know, sure. okay? You ready? Uh-huh. Okay, what's one song that you know all the lyrics to? Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> the Boss. Yes, exactly. Love it. Okay, what would your last meal be? Pizza. <laughs> From? <laughs> No particular place. I'm a vegan, and, I, and so pizza is the one thing I kind of find myself longing for at times. Yeah. It's one of the most yeah. beautiful foods in the world. <laughs> um, okay, here's a good one. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? It'll get better. Okay. Um, what do you wish you knew about your parents? Hmm. Wow, that, that's not an easy question to quickly respond to. Um, particularly my father, I would say. My father died when he was 64 years old, so mm-hmm. I lost him when he was very young, and, and I was still young. And mm-hmm. uh, So I think that there, there are untold things that I would love to learn about how his life affected him. He grew up in poverty in New York City and uh, you know what that was like for him and things that I just didn't know to ask him when, when he was alive. So uh, That's an important message. Yeah. Yeah. When you have the moment, do so, right? Yeah. Um, okay, this is a little more lighthearted. Yeah. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Mind control. Ah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I think when I was growing up, it was Saturn Girl who had mind control. You know, right, anyway, right, right, you know, right. but that would be great because well, then, then you could handle a whole lot of stuff in the world. <laughs> well, that would make your work a lot easier. Exactly right. Right, right, right. Um, okay, here's an interesting one. What is one beneficial experience that you had that you wish you'd never experience again? Divorce. The end of my first marriage. It was probably the best thing that ever happened to me in terms of having me take responsibility for my life in a different way and 
Uh, I rebuilt my life in a very different way because of it, and it was probably the and not to mention the fact that I got to meet my second wife, who was yeah. really the love of my life. Yeah. Um, but I think that uh, I've done it now. Thank you, and I don't need to do it again. <laughs> thank you for being so honest. Sure. Appreciate that. Sure. Um, okay, last question, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your message for the world? Uh, keep trying to understand yourself because um, self-awareness is the key to human compassion. It's the key to human empathy and it's the key to human understanding. Uh, Howard Ross, thank you so much, sir. I really appreciate you, your work, your perspective and this conversation. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Okay, thanks. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a review. You can also email me with feedback at stories of transformation podcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation, find others like you by following us on Instagram at stories underscore of underscore transformation and on Facebook stories transformation. You can find all this information on my website as well. www.baktashahadi.com. That's B-A-K-T-A-S-H-A-H-A-D-I.com.